it's an evidence of God's grace that um, most of you mothers um, will not have to say goodbye to your children. It's, uh, it's an evidence of God's grace that typically we grow older and we say goodbye first. Some of you out there have said goodbye to children, and I'm deeply sorry that you've had to do that because that's not the way we're created. We shouldn't have to go through that. And if you have gone through that, mothers, then you have just an inkling perhaps of some of Mary's grief and what she might have felt standing there at the base of the cross watching her son being executed and uh, not being able to do anything about it. Easter is approaching. It's coming closer and closer. And uh, every week we, we reflect on one of the statements of Christ because every statement, there's seven of them uh, as he's on the cross, every statement reflects something significant about this Jesus that we serve. They tell us something about the way he believed, about the way he lived his life, about what he thought was important, what his priorities were. And so the statements are providing the journey for us to get to Easter, and it's coming. We're halfway there. The, um, the context, though, I want you to understand a little bit about what's going on before we talk about what Jesus actually said to his mother. Let's start with his mother. It's interesting that in John, his mother is never named. Um, we know her as Mary, but she's referred to as the mother of Jesus. So her role in the scripture and her role in Jesus' life is largely undefined. We go to the other gospels to find that out. John, I think, does that on purpose. She only appears twice. She appears at the beginning of John and at the end of John. She appears in John chapter 2 at the wedding of Cana, which is his first public miracle where he reveals his glory. And then he, she appears at the end, standing at the, the foot of the cross, watching him die. At the wedding of Cana, in the beginning, you may remember the story, she's invited to the wedding of some of her friends, and Jesus and the disciples go along, they're invited as well. And um, midway through the wedding, the, um, probably the reception, the wine had run out, which was a cultural embarrassment. And so she goes to Jesus and says, the wine ran out. And his short answer is, uh, my time, my hour has not yet come. And he introduces an idea that flows all the way through the Gospel of John that there's an hour coming. There's, a, there's an hour in the history of the world which is focused on Jesus, which is very important, very significant, very strategic. So in the wedding of Cana, the hour hasn't yet come. He's pointing ahead to it. But now in this hour, it has come. He's there. He's now on the cross. So these seven statements that we're focusing on during Lent are all in Jesus' final hour, hanging on the cross in excruciating pain, I'm sure. And we learn a lot about our Messiah when we see that. Um, in the first scene, Mary's asking for his assistance. In this last scene, and I should say the final scene before he dies, this is the final act in John, He's taking care of his mother. He's the one offering the assistance now. Now, in the first century, a man being crucified could give his last testament, his last will, if you will, from the cross. It was, it was very important if your uh, mother was a widow that as the oldest son, it was your responsibility to take care of her and to make the appropriate assignment and decisions through the will to make sure she's cared for because she didn't have the capability of being cared for herself. 
And so we have evidence that they could do that even from the cross. But the oldest brother typically passed the responsibility of the mother to the other brothers, the younger brothers. Uh, because the oldest boy, after the, the oldest son after the father passed, was in charge of the household. And so um, after he died, he would pass it to the next son. Jesus doesn't do that. He says, um, a woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother, which is unusual. This may reflect his understanding from John 7. John tells us that his brothers did not yet believe in him that came after his death. And so he transferred the responsibility of his mother to a disciple who he trusted. In fact, the disciple is named uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved all throughout the Gospel of John. In any event, his actions, whatever the reason, his actions reveal to us the relationships we find in the believing community, the faith community, should be stronger than the relationships we find in our families that aren't yet believers. Now ponder that with me just for a second. The relationships we find within the faith community, within the believing community right here, should be stronger than the, the relationships that we find in our natural families. Well, then you have John the Baptist. I mean, John, uh, John the uh, disciple. Not John the Baptist, another John. John the disciple. And in the Gospel of John, he's uh, not named. He's the other unnamed character. So neither Mary nor John are named. They're called the beloved disciple, and they're called the mother of Jesus. And I think the reason why is um, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the beloved uh, disciple, is the one that wrote this gospel. And so he submerges his name in order to highlight Christ, which is exactly what he's doing in both of these stories, at the wedding of Cana and here. He doesn't name them so that they don't take center stage. It takes, uh, it takes a lot of humility to write something under the inspiration of the Spirit about Jesus and to refer to yourself as the beloved disciple. Um, he's doing two things by making that happen. Number one, he's letting us know that he had a special relationship with Jesus, and he's highlighting that. And second of all, he's submerging himself so that Jesus shines brightly. So um, both of them are unnamed. But both of them have some things in common. They were very special to Jesus. They were very faithful in their love for him. Jesus' mother was the first person in John at the wedding of Cana to express faith. This was the first miracle that he did in his ministry. And uh, when he talks to her and says, my hour has not yet come, she trusts him. And she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. That's a way of saying he's trustworthy. So she's the first person in John to place her trust in Jesus, her son. The beloved disciple, on the other hand, all the way through the gospel, is presented as the model disciple. Uh, in the story at the dinner when they're all reclining in John chapter 13, he's the one that's reclining back on the breast of Jesus. Uh, the older translations say he's leaning back against Jesus. That's how close their relationship was. And he's in that inner circle all the time. So both of them... Um, are very faithful. Both were instruments in revealing Jesus to the church. His mother, uh, you, we heard some of the opening re readings today, his mother knew full well who he was. And his mother raised him. She bore him. She's the one that uh, God entrusted to raise the Messiah to get him to the point where he was ready to assume that. And that just didn't happen because he was God. 
Hebrews uh, 5, I think it is, tells us he, it was necessary for him to learn obedience, just like any human. He had to learn that. So his mother was very significant in uh, bearing him and preparing him to assume the role of the Messiah. The beloved disciple is the one that wrote the Gospel of John, and he reveals him to us. That's the whole reason he wrote the Gospel, according to John 21, so that we might know that he is the Son of God and might believe in him and have uh, life in his name. So both of them were instruments in revealing Jesus to the church. Both were now going through their darkest hour. The other disciples scattered. They're gone, as Jesus predicted they would. And yet here, and yet here John is. So they're in their very darkest hour. Now, we had the benefit of knowing the end of the story. So it's easy for us to just kind of pass right through this. But pause for a moment and reflect with me. If you did not know the end of the story and you're reading this, and you're experiencing it for the first time, your concept of the Messiah sent from God is that he would rescue us. He would deliver us. Not that he would die. And so they're standing at the base of the cross, and they're watching their hope, their entire hope for the future, future uh, poured out in front of their eyes. I can't imagine the uh, despair. I can't imagine the discouragement. Uh, we know they were discouraged. We know they didn't know what to do because after he died, they all huddled up and went and hid. Hid in a house. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know the answer to the story. Imagine if you had lost your child in a ex particularly excruciating way. You would watched him be tortured you watched him uh, suffer great, a great deal of pain, incredible pain, and then finally die. And then three days later, you see him again. Do you see why Easter is so, so magnificent? Why Easter is so absolutely wonderful? Easter is the day after we reflect on these seven statements, that final hour. Easter is the day when we will jump up and down and celebrate because that's what the disciples did. They couldn't stop them. The world could not stop these 11 disciples and the women, Acts says, that were there, including Jesus' mother. Everywhere they went, they told the story. We have seen the risen Savior. We saw him. John, when he wrote 1 John, he says, our eyes beheld him. Our hands touched him. We were there. You can't tell us he's not real. We saw it with our own eyes. But right now, they're in the darkest hour because their hope for the future is about to die. He's in his final moments of life when they're standing there. They didn't understand the theological significance of what this meant. They're on a journey, a journey of belief. They're on a journey in their Christian faith to grow. That's what the Gospel of John actually is all about. John presents the story of all of these people in a journey of belief. John doesn't tell us when they came to know the Lord, when they believed in him, when they placed their faith in him, all the language that we use. That, la that language is not written in there, in the gospel. What we do know is at the beginning, we have these uh, men who are following Jesus, and uh, he's a good teacher, and they begin to suspect he's a lot more than that. In the middle of the book, we have them acclaiming that well, you're the Christ, the Son of God, but even still, they're not really sure what that means. And by the end, when, uh, when he's risen from the dead, we have Thomas saying, uh, when I see his 
nail prints, then I will believe. And Jesus said, here they are. And he says, my Lord and my God. So when did Thomas become a believer in Jesus? I don't know, but I know he was at that point in time. And so the Gospel of John is laid out to to help us see that faith is actually a journey. Believing in Jesus is just a milestone on that journey, but it is not the beginning nor the end. It's in the middle of that. And John is written to help you along your journey. In fact, the way he wrote it, I think it's brilliant. He wrote it in such a way that you make decisions about your faith without even realizing it. So every character that John introduces plays a significant role. So you look at the lame man at the pool of Bethesda, for instance. Uh, Jesus heals him, not based on his faith. Jesus heals him because he wants to. And then the man turns around, and when the uh, temple leaders, the leaders of the temple come up to him, he's nervous and frightened, he betrays Jesus. And uh, that gets Jesus in a lot of water. So when you read that story of somebody betraying Jesus, your natural inclination is to say, do I want to be like this person or not? How many of you want to be known for a betrayer of Jesus? Oh, I didn't think so. Okay. Similarly, just a couple chapters later, you have the blind man. Uh, Jesus heals him. And um, when the leaders of the temple come after him, they, uh, they kind of get in his face and they start pushing him around. And he kind of stands up and he says, what, do you want to become his disciples too? And uh, he, ref- he pushes back so hard that they kick him out of the temple. They expel him from the temple. Jesus finds him after that event and says, do you believe in the Son of God? And he said, who is he? And he said, You're, it's me. And he worships him right then. So the first one was a traitor, turned Jesus in. The second one stood up at the risk of his own personal security and got kicked out of the temple. Which one do you want to be? Do you see how those characters just naturally guide you into down this path and you get to decide what type of person you want to be? That's the story of John. John is written to guide you in that process of faith. And when you read the story from beginning to end, you find yourself naturally saying, I would like to be like this person or I don't want to be like this person. In other words, is my faith real or is my faith not real? So this is a significant point in their theological journey, their journey of belief. We're not told what they believe. We're not told if they, how much they're struggling. We have to kind of figure that out. We have pieces of evidence, like afterwards we know what they did before he was resurrected. But it's a significant point, nevertheless, in John's theology. That's the point that Jesus steps in and acts. In John chapter 13, at the beginning of this Passion Week... John tells us it was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the very end. We're now at the very end. We're into the story. And he does something remarkable here. He says, woman, here is your son. Some of your translations say, look at your son. Some say, behold your son. Uh, This is what some people refer to as a revelatory moment. Stop and look. This is your son. And then he says to the disciple, look at your mother. Stop and pay attention. He's doing something brand new at this one 
second in time, I think. He's doing something brand new. He just put together the basic core of the church, this new humanity. And the ties through belief are stronger than the ties through blood. And here it is, right here. His mother is now cared for. He's creating an entirely new community. His mother and the beloved disciple are now a new family. They form a new family. Um, it's interesting that in verse 27, from that time on, from that very hour, uh, Jesus, uh, the disciple took her into his house. This phrase, into his house, is the exact phrase that occurs in chapter 1, verse 11, where he says he came unto his own and his own did not receive him. But those who did receive him were given the right to be called children of God. Right? John chapter 1. So in the very beginning of John, he introduces a question that doesn't get answered till right now. Jesus came as the Messiah, and he was not welcomed. He was not received by his own. You could translate it the exact way. He was not taken into his own home. And that would work. And that question remains unanswered all the way through the book until this final act. And we have an example that John, the beloved disciple, took Mary into his home. And by extension, he received Christ. He welcomed Christ into his home because this is the mother of Jesus. So he takes, he takes her into his home, and he does that out of his love and faithfulness to Jesus, out of his strong conviction and belief that Jesus is the Messiah. I don't think he knew what it meant for him to die, but he knew that much. So John uses this phrase to help us connect the dots that um, the question has been answered. The creation of this new community uh, was very practical in nature. The beloved disciple took care of his mother. We now see this begin to blossom and to flourish into, into, uh, into the post-resurrection moments, all through the book of Acts. We now see Christians doing this very thing. They're banding together. They're sticking together. They're taking care of one another. So that by the time you get to Acts 2, um, they're, they're, they're celebrating and they're having everything in common. They're selling stuff to care for the people that were in Jerusalem. Got to remember at this time, during this festival, all the Jews from around the world had come to the festival. And so uh, some of them were poor and couldn't take care of themselves. So the, Jew, the Christians in Jerusalem were selling their things and taking care of them. It's very practical. They banded together. They formed these churches. They formed these new communities, these new families like we have here. And they cared for one another. That's why at the heart of Christianity is taking care of one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have, what? Finish the sentence. Love for who? Love for one another, right? This is a new commandment. It's also an old commandment. It occurs in the Old Testament. It's the summation of the law, caring for one another. And we see the very initial step right here as he's hanging on the cross. Not only that, but the gathering. There's this image all the way through John, many places where Jesus talks about people would come to him. The nations would come to him. We've seen that language in recent weeks. The Jews would come to him. People would turn to him. And we see... This is the fulfillment and the initial seed of that idea of the gathering of the redeemed, that he would call these people. So he puts his mother together with the beloved disciple, and then 
he dies. After he resurrects, we see the church just explode. And we see all the nations coming. Acts is the story of that. Starting in Acts 8.1, when the church is scattered. It's Acts 8.1, you just read one story after another, one ethnic group after another, one nation after another, coming to Christ. And uh, that's just 50 days after this moment right here. This is where it all started. This point in time. So, his final act, as he's hanging on the cross, in his last hour of death, he knows death is imminent, um, because the very next thing later, knowing that everything had now been finished, so he knows his work is finished, and we'll look at the rest of his statements in the coming weeks. So he's in his final hour, and he uh, is in pain, and what does he do? He demonstrates love and compassion. He demonstrates love and compassion. His final act was to care for those that he loves, which became the heart and soul of the church that reaches out for us, reaches out to us Gentiles. So his final act was to care for those he loves. So look at where we've come in three weeks. Three weeks ago, or two weeks ago today, we talked about um, Father, forgive them, Luke. His words there, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And we learned through that statement that uh, forgiveness brings life, and God is the only one that can forgive sin. And so Jesus, his final, one of his final statements was to ask God to forgive these people who are crucifying him. Forgiveness brings life. So one of Jesus' final statements was to communicate to us that he brings life to us. Last week, when uh, the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. That brings hope. It brings hope. If our Messiah in one of his final statements, says, today I will be in paradise and you will be with me? That should bring us hope. That answers the question of what happens when we die. When my first wife, Judy, went to be with the Lord, I was with her at the end and she was pretty nervous. About a day before she died, she expressed that to me. I don't know what it'll happen, what it'll be like to die. And I said, well, I don't either, but I look at these passages about paradise, and Paul said about absent from the body, present with the Lord, and I think what will happen is this. Um, in the final hours, they'll put you in a coma, and you'll be out. I'll be there with you. I won't leave your side. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Jesus will just walk up with a smile on his face and say, it's time to go. Get up. Let's go. And I said, uh, you'll get up, and you'll leave with him and walk away, and uh, I will see that. And I believe that's what I saw when her heart stopped. You have nothing to fear with death. It has been taken care of. The actual physical act of death makes us nervous, but you have nothing to fear because Paul made it very clear, absent from the body, present with the Lord. At no time are you alone. And today, you will be with me in paradise. Luke. So, if forgiveness teaches, that, teaches us that Jesus' death brings life, then the whole statement on paradise teaches us that Jesus' Jesus's death solidifies that hope. It's real. If the Messiah believed it, I believe it. And if I die today, I will be with him in paradise. And today, in this passage, woman, here is your son. Son, 
Here is your mother. His final act was to care for those he loved. So this statement teaches us that Jesus was serious. He was committed to his mission. It shows us how deeply he loves us. If his final act in the midst of pain was to care for people that meant something to him. So in the middle of his darkest moment, most painful moment, he demonstrates love, passionate love. What does that mean for the rest of us? He's not on the cross now. So that statement is there on purpose to help us grasp a sense of how much he passionately loves us. That's what drove him to the cross. Let's pray. Father, I don't know what it's like to say goodbye to a son, to willingly allow my son to uh, be executed on my behalf. Uh, I can't even begin to imagine that. And Jesus, I don't know what it would be like to... Um, to willingly die for someone else. I know in my heart I believe I would do it, but I haven't experienced it. So I would like to say thank you, God, for uh, providing for us, for loving us this deeply that in your final acts, your final breaths of life, you would pause and take care of your mother because uh, I know then you'll care for me as well. I pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.